0: If you have your Bible this morning, you might want to open it up to Acts chapter 17, 17th chapter of Acts. That's where we'll find the text we want to look at together for a few minutes this morning. It's good to be back here and in front of everybody today. It was uh, nice to be on vacation last week and I appreciate the opportunity we had to do that. It's the first time we've done that for an extended length of time in, in several years. But It's also good to to be back home and to start to return to some sense of normalcy, so I'm glad to be here this morning, although I I look around and it looks like most everyone else decided this was a good time to go on vacation. I don't know if they heard I was coming back and decided, well, we'll skip town and miss him for one more week or or what, but uh, at any rate, I'm glad that you're here and I hope the time we spend here together is, is beneficial for all of us. I read a story about a young man who was fresh out of preaching school with all of the knowledge and the the theories whirring around in his head and the the zeal that's characteristic of someone fresh out of school. He'd just been hired at a small country church and he decided with all of his enthusiasm he was gonna go out and he was gonna spread the gospel here in his new community. So he's in the process of doing that on the first day and he finds His first likely target, farmer out there working in the field. And he goes up to the man and he says, Are you laboring in the vineyard of the Lord, my good man? Farmer doesn't even look up. No, these are soybeans, not grapes. You misunderstand me. Are you a Christian? Farmer has that same disinterested tone. No, sir, my name's Jones. You must be looking for Jim Christian. He lives about a mile further down the road. Preachers undaunted. Are you lost? No, I've lived here my whole life. He's growing a little frustrated by this time. He finally decides on one more tack. Are you prepared for the resurrection? That perked the farmer up. When's it going to be? Now he thought, I've got him, I've got him on the hook. And he smiled and he said, well, it could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be the next day. The farmer took his handkerchief out of his pocket and wiped his brow. He said, well, sir, I'm pretty busy with the harvest. I'd appreciate it if you don't tell my wife. She don't get out much, and if she hears about it, she'll want us to go all three days. One of the final charges that Jesus gave to his apostles before the Ascension was for them to go out into the world and to tell other people about him. Matthew's account of the, the Great Commission puts it, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. Now, as I said, we normally refer to this as the Great Commission. And we recognize that this commandment is just as much for us as it was for those apostles back in the first century. But it's not so easy to do, is it? We're just like that young preacher who went out we find ourselves having a lot of trouble talking to people about Jesus. Sometimes it seems that our contemporary culture holds values that are so alien to the truths of Christianity that it's almost impossible to approach them in any way with the gospel of Christ. Because of that, I think it's instructive for us to look at an example from Scripture of a great evangelist, in fact, really the pattern for all missionary activity, the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul often encountered stiff opposition in his preaching. He was frequently frustrated, he was sometimes persecuted, but he also met with a great deal of success. And I think if we note the methods and the tactics that he employed, we might be able to gather some principles that we can use in our own efforts to reach out to others. So, this morning, I want us to examine his sermon in Acts chapter 17 on Mars Hill in Athens. And in doing that, let's have a view to the evangelistic strategy that he employs. But first of all, let's back up a little bit and let's talk about the setting. And you see a a helpful map there, I think, on the the board for this overview. Acts chapter 16 marks the beginning of what we normally call Paul's second missionary journey. Now, at the very beginning, he goes through those cities in which he established churches on his first missionary journey. Now, after doing that, he wants to continue on to the west, uh, probably on to Ephesus. But the Holy Spirit forbids him. And so he turns north, intending to go up into Bithynia. But he stopped from doing that too. Ultimately, God sends him a vision of a man in Macedonia who says, come over and help us. And now they have a plan of attack. Paul and his companions interpret that as a cry to go over and to preach the gospel on the European continent for the first time. And so they do that. They land at Neapolis, and then the first city of importance they stop at is Philippi. They encounter a, a woman there, a devout lady named Lydia. She's a seller of purple. They preach the gospel to her. She is converted along with her whole household. That is all the employees who work for her. Paul next cast a spirit of divination out of a slave girl. And that causes some consternation for her owners because they've lost their source of income. And so they have Paul and his traveling companion, Silas, cast into prison. They charge them with causing a public disturbance. But if you remember the story, the short version there, a miraculous earthquake shakes open the doors of the prison there at midnight. The result is that their jailer and all of his family are converted. And in the morning, Paul and Silas are released. Well, in Acts chapter 17, from there, Paul passes down through Thessalonica. And here he goes into the synagogue where he meets with some success preaching Jesus. It says he reasoned on three Sabbath days with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaimed to you is the Christ. So there was some success with his reasoning from the scriptures. But there was also some resistance. And ultimately that resistance drove him from Thessalonica down the road to Berea. Well in Berea he continued on that usual pattern. He went into the synagogue and the Bereans were a much more receptive audience than in Thessalonica. In verse 11, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. But before long, those same antagonists from Thessalonica heard about the success that Paul was having, and they wouldn't stand for it. So they went a little further down the road, and they drove him out of Berea, too. And that brings us to the setting of our story this morning, the city of Athens. Athens was, of course, one of the most prominent cities in all of the ancient world. It was the city of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, of playwrights and poets and scientists. Now at this point in its history, Athens was long since past its political prime. That was centuries before. But even in the first century, it was still regarded as the intellectual capital the cultural capital of the Roman Empire. Luke says down in verse number 21 that it was just full of people, foreigners and natives alike, who would spend their time in nothing except hearing or telling something new. Accordingly, Paul is out talking about Jesus in the marketplace, and some of the philosophers hear about it, and their interest is piqued. Verse number 18 Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? That word babbler literally means a seed picker. That is one who picks up a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit over there and tries to act like he has more knowledge than he actually does. He's putting it together in this new form and acts like he's some sort of wise man, but he's a sophist. He's a dilettante. The last part of that verse, others ask, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. The idea of foreign divinities or strange gods, your translation may say, could be because of the word resurrection. In Greek, that's anastasis, which was used as a proper female name. Our modern name, Anastasia, comes from that. And so it seems that they were hearing it as if he were preaching a couple of gods, Jesus and his consort, resurrection, or Anastasia. Who are these new gods? At any rate, however they interpret it, they want to hear more about what Paul has to say. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, I want you to notice we have a picture of ancient Athens here. Think about what a different environment this is for Paul. Previously, we've seen him teaching Jesus in the Jewish synagogues, and as we read, he reasoned from the scriptures. Luke says he did that on two of the previous stops, just in this chapter alone. And even then, when we find him turning to Gentile audiences, these were likely proselytes or what Luke often refers to as God-fearers, that is Gentiles on the sort of periphery of the synagogue. They they believed in the Jewish God. They kept the law in some sense. They just weren't full-fledged converts to Judaism. Certainly, this is a very different audience from these Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. These are the intelligentsia of Athens. And Paul, therefore, approaches them in a completely different way from anything we've seen before. A way that I think is potentially instructive for us. I want to read his sermon beginning in verse number 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like Gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He's fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He's appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Now let's talk a little bit about this sermon. As we said, Paul is addressing a group of people radically different from himself. He is a Jew, a rabbi in fact, a Pharisee steeped in the law of Israel. He describes himself in Galatians chapter three, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Obviously these individuals are Gentiles But we've seen Paul addressing Gentiles and Acts before. That in itself isn't anything new. What's different? These are Athenians. They're proud of their culture and their history. They're proud of their reputation for wisdom and for learning. And the audience that he's addressing here is particularly representative of that mindset. These are philosophers. This is a conscious continuation of that ancient Athenian tradition. And because of that, they're likely to be somewhat skeptical of anything that Paul brings. We already noted, Luke says they delighted in hearing and talking about anything that was new. So we've encountered some Gentiles before in Acts who were not attached to the synagogue in any way. Back in chapter 14 in Lyconia. But Lyconia was regarded as this backwater. And so when Paul and Barnabas go there, they start to worship them as gods. (laughs) The Athenians are far too sophisticated for something like that, like those hicks in Lyconia. They've heard it all. They've seen it all, at least in their own minds. Does this remind us in any way of our own postmodern culture? Where enlightenment, knowledge, is all about being conversant in every different theory and idea that comes along without necessarily subscribing to any of them. In fact, you really don't want to subscribe to any one of them. Because your truth might not be the same as my truth. In fact, the only incontrovertible truth is that there is no absolute truth. You see, I think. Paul's audience has a good deal in common with any audience that we'd approach today. And his worldview is just as far from the view of those philosophers as our worldview is from anyone around us here in our society. And so it's interesting for us to observe the strategy that Paul takes in approaching these people. How does he go about reaching those who have worldviews that are so different from his? He attempts to find common ground with them. He speaks to them about this unknown God whom they worship. And he uses that as a springboard to make this argument from natural revelation. You have this argument, or you have this monument to the unknown God? Let me tell you about him the God who created the world and you and everything that's in the universe. See, before we've seen Paul reason from the Jewish scriptures, but that won't work in this setting. Most of his audience probably didn't even know the Jewish scriptures, and if they did, they certainly didn't value it. They didn't care anything about that book. It held no relevance for them. So he appeals to a source of authority that would be relevant for them. He quotes from their own poets, Epimenides, Eratus, that's where these two quotations, and him we live and move and have our being, and for we are indeed his offspring, those are sources they'd put stock in. He reaches out to them on their own level. And so here's the important point Paul tailors his approach to fit his audience, Paul uses the approach that's suitable for the audience that he's addressing. A lot of people seem to be operating under a misconception. And that is, if you're not calling down fire and brimstone and damnation on sinners, that you're not really preaching the gospel. Well, Paul's approach here belies that. And in fact, it's not just in his actions here. He himself talks about this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 19, he says, Though I am free from all, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Now, obviously, we're not likely to encounter any sort of literal idol worshippers in the same sense as these that Paul encountered here in Athens, but The practical application at this point for us, search for what you do have in common with other people. It's probably a lot. Even if their worldview is totally different from yours. They're around Liberty, they live in the same town, they might have a lot of the same interests that you do, they might follow the same sports teams, who knows what it is. The point is, whatever those commonalities are, use them as a starting point. Get your foot in the door to tell them about Jesus. The flip side of this point is equally important. And that is that Paul didn't hold anything back in what he had to say to them. Or to again quote from him, in talking to the elders of the church in Ephesus, he says, I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. You see, a lot of people also seem to be under a misconception that if you tailor your approach to your audience, if you try to, to mold it based on what their needs are in any way, well then you end up compromising the truth. You become wishy-washy, half-hearted, you bid Godspeed to their evil deeds. But what I want you to note here is that in spite of taking the most accommodating approach that he can to his audience. Paul doesn't pull any punches here in the way that he addresses them. He says that their service is ignorant. He says they're now commanded to repent. He speaks in terms geared towards towards his audience, but he strikes right at the heart of their failure. He says that God doesn't need anything from humans. He doesn't dwell in a temple that's made by human hands. And the day is coming in which he's going to judge the world by the one whom he raised from the dead. Now, that's framed in different terms, but what I'd point out to you is that sounds a lot like most of the sermons that we see in other contexts throughout the book of Acts. Peter preached and said that it was through ignorance that Jesus was crucified. Stephen in Acts chapter 7 stands up before the Sanhedrin and he says towards the end of his sermon that God doesn't dwell in a temple that's made with human hands. So you see, Paul's statements are true and they're forceful, and they're the same truths that were delivered to a Jewish audience by other preachers, even to the Sanhedrin. It's just presented in a slightly different package here. So that's the other important point. Paul tailors his approach to his audience, but tailoring your message to your audience doesn't mean that you compromise the truth. I was reminded of that powerfully in a real-world example this week. I don't know how many of you saw this it made the rounds online. Uh, Chris Pratt is a name that some of you will know as a, an actor, comedian. He first made a name for himself on the TV show Parks and Rec. He plays Star-Lord and Guardians of the Galaxy. He plays in the a new Jurassic Park series. I don't know what his particular beliefs are, but Pratt's a professing Christian of some sort. And this week he received an MTV movie award. And he stood up and used that as an opportunity to address his audience about some fundamental truths. He gave his uh, nine rules for living. And some of these were funny because that's his personality. And again, he's tailored it to his audience. So his first rule was something like breathe, otherwise you'll suffocate Or if you need to give your dog medicine, be sure to put in a little bit of hamburger because he'll just eat the hamburger and not realize that he's getting medicine. But some of them were some really serious points. You have a soul. God is real. And God loves you. Learn to pray. But the most important one was his final one. And you talk about not pulling any punches. I I wrote this down verbatim. Nobody is perfect. People are going to tell you that you're perfect just the way you are. You're not. You are imperfect. You always will be. But there's a powerful force that designed you that way. And if you're willing to accept that, then you will have grace. And grace is a gift. And like the freedom we enjoy in this country, that grace was paid for with someone else's blood. That's a powerful message. That's straight out of Romans chapter 7. Now, I'm not suggesting that's the way I'd frame it in the pulpit. But that's the whole point. He tailored that to fit his audience, and he proclaimed the gospel to them. I don't know what effect, if any, that that had, but it might start some wheels to turning. Who knows? And that's precisely the point that we want to make this morning. What result did Paul's sermon have? Let's look at that finally. Back to Acts 17. Verse 32, when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Even though Paul put forth his best effort to preach the gospel, to reach those Athenians, not all of them believed. Some of them mocked him when he got to that part about the resurrection of the dead. That's ludicrous. Who could ever believe that nonsense? Some of them said they wanted to hear more about it, although whether that's out of genuine interest or out of that desire we talked about to just talk about new things, it's not really clear. It could be that they just wanted to have the discussion all over again because they never got tired of it. And I think that those two responses sound a lot like what we get in our own society. Some people just aren't going to buy it. That's ridiculous. I can't believe you still follow that Christian nonsense. And some people might want to debate it or discuss it academically. But you know what? Some did believe, Luke says. Does that make it a success? Maybe not in the sense of the 3,000 who were baptized on Pentecost or the 5,000 who were baptized after Peter healed the lame man, but what I want to remind you is there's rejoicing in heaven over even one soul that responds to the gospel. And in that sense, his preaching absolutely was a success. So often we feel at a complete loss with how to approach others and to tell them about Jesus. Our society seems diametrically opposed to the values and the beliefs that we have as Christians. Particularly in our postmodern culture, Christianity is viewed as this quaint, Outdated superstition. It's imperative that we remember Christianity is always countercultural. That was every bit as true in the first century as it is today. Paul faced the same problems in dealing with his audience there on Mars Hill that we face with anyone we tell about the gospel of Christ today. And so in that light, I think his approach here is a good one in its broad strokes for us to follow. By finding common ground with those out in our community, but by not compromising the truths of the gospel in doing that, well, I submit we can have the same success that Paul did. We might not all convert 5,000 or 3,000, or even whole households, as he does at some points in Acts. But we can all bring one or two people to Jesus. And that's a success. Maybe you're here this morning and you yourself have never come to Jesus. I would invite you to do that this morning through this same message that Paul preached that there is a day coming in which God is going to judge the world through the one whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus Christ. Put your trust in him. Turn to God in repentance. Be buried with Jesus in baptism and have your sins washed away. Be added to the Lord's people. Be ready for that judgment day. Maybe you're here this morning and you already are a Christian, but... You failed in this aspect. You failed to go and carry out the Great Commission. Or maybe there's some other aspect of your life, some sin that you're struggling with that you'd like us to address, that you'd like the prayers of the church who's gathered here today. Whatever your need may be, if we can help you in any way, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and sing.